the Advancing Women in Sport podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Michelle Redfern. I'm so thrilled to bring you season two, and I've called it The Boys Club, stories of people who are smashing the patriarchy in sport. In season two, I'm lifting my eyes and lifting my focus to the whole system of sport. I know from the work that I do with clients in both the business and sport areas, it's important to fix systems and remove barriers that prevent women from all walks of life, from all ages and stages in all sports on and off the field. I know it's important to remove barriers for those women to be successful. So my guests on season two are diverse. They are people of different genders, they're in different geographies and of course different parts of the sporting sector. What season two guests all have in common is that they are agitating, advocating and activating for gender equality in sport. I hope you enjoy the episode. The Advancing Women in Sport podcast is created on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. I also celebrate the massive contribution that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island peoples have made to sport, and I acknowledge their contribution across the world. So Moya Dodd, it is brilliant to have you here and I'm looking forward to learning from you today in our discussion about how to level the playing field for women and girls in sport. Now, our listeners have already heard your official bio, but let's say that you are wandering into a, a function or meeting some new people right now and they said, oh, hello, who are you? Oh, I can see you Moya Dodd by your name badge. What do you do? And, and let's talk about sport. How do you describe who you are, what you do and what you bring? Well, if I was in a pub and someone said, oh, g'day and tell me about you, I would probably say, well, I'm a bit of a football nut and I've had a lot of adventures in football. I've played three different codes of it, two of them not particularly well. But, you know, I've had a lot of adventures both on the field and into the boardroom here and overseas. I guess that would summarise it. It would. And, and of course, you're being very modest because you've played it at the, the highest level for Australia. Given that you've transitioned from the footy field to the boardroom, as you said it, and there's been a whole bunch of stuff that hap- has happened in between, where would you say your journey around being a very strong and vocal advocate for women, women in sport, women in football, where would you say it began? And, and I say I ask that question with some understanding of I know that there's not often one instance or one thing because as women we are immersed in stuff from, from birth, but when did you become aware that you were going to move from looking after yourself to others in sport, particularly other women in sport? I think I had just started university and I was playing on the university team and one of my teammates was the president of the South Australian Women's Soccer Association at the time and they didn't have a publicity officer. And I was 16 or 17 when I started uni and I finished up being the publicity officer for the South Australian Women's Soccer Association back then. I wasn't even old enough to drink in a bar, but you know that in the early days of the sport, the people who were practicing it had to build out the platform as they went. It was like, you know, building the plane as you're flying it, as they say in the corporate world. Uh, but that really was the case because it was so new. It had a had a separate body to the men who the men weren't really looking after it at, at a at a governing body level. They were but at a club level, many of the many of the clubs with men's teams also grew women's teams. And nobody really knew that it was there. So my first job was to collect the scores. Every Sunday night, I would sit by the phone eating my dinner, fresh out of the bath after my match, and I would wait for people to phone the scores through. And then I would ring the guy at the advertiser and recite the scores to him, and uh, they would be in the paper the next day. So that was my first job in football, I guess. I, I also wrote a few, even before that, I think I was at high school and I would write little match summaries for the Port Adelaide Messenger, which was our local paper. And yeah, that was um, that was fun, an early lesson in how to present your sport to the broader world to give them the stories and feed their interest in it. I remember getting into a lot of trouble with my coach for using his real name in the match report because he was worried the police <laughs> would find him. Okay. That's a whole other story in itself, I guess. <laughs> so 
at a very early age, you were advocating um, for, for women's sports. So getting getting women into the sports pages, which or your sport into the sports pages. Was there anything that during that time or as, as time went on that kind of fueled your, well, I use the word outrage because I remain perpetually outraged at the treatment of women in sport on and off the field. But um, was there anything that, that you kind of went, hang on, this is this is inequitable or this is not fair? And, and I guess then what did you decide to do about it? I think all of us at that time knew that it was profoundly unfair. We didn't fully appreciate the history of how it got that way, but we knew that, for example, when our state team went away, we had to sell lamingtons and uh, you know do quiz nights in order to raise money to make it affordable for ourselves and our teammates. Those were the sad realities of the time. At the same time, I would save up my pocket money and buy a ticket to go to Highmarsh Stadium to watch the uh, watch West Adelaide or Adel- or or go to Kensington Park and watch Adelaide City or watch the Socceroos when they came to town. And it was a world apart. Um, and even when I made the national team, we were paying for our the privilege of going to a training camp, for example. I remember getting a second part-time job in my honours year and saving up 700 bucks so I could spend a week at the Institute of Sport. And, you know, that was quite a lot of money at that time. So those realities were always upon us. And I, I guess you have to you have to ration your energy between feeling outraged and wanting to challenge the system that you're in versus spending your energy just trying to excel within the system because you don't feel like you have much control over it i i think everybody who played at that time had a sense that it was their their role to build out the platform so that it would be more respected and be more accessible to to generations after us. Uh, I remember the very first international tournament that FIFA ever held for women in 1988 and the the sense of um, responsibility that we felt as players to put on a good show because if we put on a good show, then they might announce that they would have a regular World Cup. And... The first one of them was in 1991, three years later. But I think we all felt the responsibility that we had to show what we had. We had to put on a good game of football. Obviously, we wanted to win, but it was always there that we needed to make it impossible for them to refuse to advance the women's game. We knew that if there was a World Cup, then the doors would open for sponsors, there would be more government support for the game, and that we would get out of this cycle of being considered really kind of small time and irrelevant and move into something that is much more like what you see today for women's football and for women's sport more broadly. I hadn't really considered that pressure that yourself and your your playing colleagues including your coaching colleagues, would have been under at that time. And as you were speaking about it, I was drawing parallels with the other game that I love, um, which is AFLW, um, so Australian Rules Football. Yeah, I've played a bit of that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, three codes, yeah. I was trying to think, oh, three codes, yeah. I know. I, I, I knew you'd had a, a, a dabble, but I was drawing parallels. Actually, I with played the... for New South Wales in Aussie Rules back in the day. Oh, did you? Not that, with all due respect to my teammates, not that it was um, quite at the level that it is now, but it was an awful lot of fun. It is. I, I guess that on-field product, and, and we talk about the product, and that's what I hear a lot about in the AFLW, but I, I hadn't considered for you and your colleagues at that time that building out a product and making it so good or so hard to ignore that it would be impossible for administrators to ignore. I, I, I must admit I hadn't considered that. If you were to think about that time of going back in time, God, wouldn't we want to do that? But what else would you have wanted to see for you and your colleagues on field? What would you have wanted to see off field to support um, that product being the best that it could be? What would you change? So I think there are lessons for current administrators when we're trying to develop new products and new markets and new audiences. How do we support, better support those women on the field who are doing the best that they can uh, be, the best that they can be to, to, to develop this product? I think that administrators today of emerging women's sports need to do everything they can to legitimise the sport 
played by women and to remove all the kind of invisible headwinds that apply to the women's game. Being part-time, meaning that they've got to work all day. You might be standing up in a sports shop selling boots to people all day and then you go to training in the afternoon or the evening. And is it any surprise that show up looking a bit tired? The medical support that's given, uh, publicity that's given. I mean, do you, if you have a marketing officer, do you have a marketing officer? Do you pay them the same as what you pay the marketing officer on the men's side? Because they're probably doing a harder job. Your coaches, do you pay them the same as you pay the men? Do you open up those opportunities to women who have played the game as you open them up to men have, who have played the game? Do you appreciate the longevity of women coaches in football? Because chances are they're not going to get poached to coach a men's or boys team. Chances are they will be left in the women's game and they are an excellent long-term investment that will pay off over time. Um, You know, do you come to your job with the assumption that this is second best and you only need to do a second best job of it because no one will really hold you to account because that's really changing now. I see sponsors particularly holding administrators to account and asking why the spend differential is so great uh, and why the treatment is so different. So, you know, these, these can feel like profound questions for a sports administrator because you inherit a world that's been shaped by decades of neglect and even, in the case of my sport, bans against women playing. Those things take time to undo. Administrators have many stakeholders. So if you wake up on Monday and say, look, I'm going to equalise everything, the wages, the budgets, the access to elite facilities, the access to elite support, then um, I would say you're a great, you've made a great move but you know, we all know that that's going to be a big adjustment for people and people don't necessarily adjust well to equality when they've had decades of uh, inequality and they've been on the upside of that, right? So those things, you have to think as carefully, you have to think carefully about how you make those adjustments so that they are accepted and supported. Because there's one piece of wisdom that was shared by a guy called Hudson Taylor, who's the the founder of Athlete Ally. And he pointed out to me that there has never been a movement that benefits a minority or a disadvantaged group without the consent of the majority. So uh, as Nelson Mandela knew and negotiated for decades of his life, the consent of the majority ultimately is needed to embed that equality in into a sport. Democracy is a world where the majority rules, but that might mean wolves and a sheep deciding on what to have for lunch, right? So you have to go beyond just simply saying, well, that's what most people want and say, is that the right thing to do? So there's a couple of things that have popped into my mind as you were talking. So the first one was that when you've been accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And so there's, there's a lot of, a lot of water battery when, when we start and, you know, particularly for the work that you do, um, in advocating for to, to level the playing field, uh, and certainly in the work that I do. But what about, what about? So we are talking about systems that have been predominantly built by men and cater to the needs of men for literally hundreds of years. So yes, I, I agree. And I suppose the other thing that comes to mind is talking about, do we want evolution or revolution? Now, the impatient amongst us in the, uh, the persisterhood, as you, as you coined, um, the impatient amongst us would ask for revolution. But I think you've given some wise counsel there about, um, we need the majority to, to make space, um, to help women in sport on and off the field thrive. So we are going to have to win hearts and minds, um, because 
I don't believe a lot of people give up power willingly, and that's what we're talking about is is power. So, to or a sense of power or a sense of control. So, when it comes to evolution and evolutionary evolutionary approaches to gender equity, you know, I, I guess what's been your experience when you have been as a leader in sport faced into uh, duress. Okay, we've got we've got an opportunity here to do the right thing, as you said. We should do X, Y, or Z, but then that majority has pushed back, which is what we're going to – administrators will have to deal with. This is the reality. You are going to get pushed back and you have stakeholders and we have to negotiate and influence and all that kind of stuff. So what does leadership under duress look like when we're talking about gender equity? What does it look like for you, Moira? And, and I guess how do you navigate it? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's not – quite as simple as the people who push back and the people who support. I found there was always a a significant middle group could see why it needed to be done. They they'd had a kind of an intellectual sympathy with the progress that you were trying to uh trying to bring about, but they were also looking over their shoulder at the real politic of their positions, uh how much change their constituents were ready to take and they were having to decide how much skin in the game they personally would put on these issues, how much they would put at risk in order to support you. And the answer might be some or it might be none. <laughs> and and so I guess it's reading that middle group that um, and persuading them that it was in their interests to be progressive uh, I think was one of the key challenges that I had to face and, and to meet. Uh, I mean, I, I was very lucky to, I count myself very lucky to have been in FIFA um, as a co-opted member of its board at the time that the arrests were made and the so-called FIFA gate crisis broke um, because that opened the door for reform and for change. And I was lucky to be there because all the change I heard about initially was about, you know, financial transparency and term limits and, you know, all good corporate hygiene issues that absolutely needed to be taken forward, but no one was talking about gender balance as part of the problem or part of the solution. And that took um, initiatives by women to put that on the table and to, uh, assess who was going to support it and who wasn't to lobby uh, both um, in sight publicly and and behind the scenes uh, to bring about some reforms to the FIFA statutes that counted human rights, uh, gender equality, and um, you know things like quota positions, things like putting women's football as uh, a key part of the 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 raison d'etre of FIFA it's in the it's in the statutory purposes of FIFA now so you know those things didn't come about um without a lot of work behind the scenes and a lot of advocacy to the people who mattered so you know there, there were many parts of that what one was um understanding exactly who needed to be convinced to support or get out of the way of those reforms. And there were different audiences at different stages to work out how we were going to reach those audiences, uh, to to try and understand what would motivate those people to be supportive. And then ultimately to decide on when, whether to support or criticise the end package that was put forward. Um, could it be pushed any further or was this about as far as the rubber band could stretch, you know, in, in the minds of the voting presidents who were, by the way, 99% male uh, in the FIFA Congress? So there were many sort of interesting parts of that process. So I guess my my what, my favourite memory of it all is the collaboration that happened between women globally to uplift this and make it happen and also the allyship that we got from groups like Athlete Ally and many others who were absolutely willing to believe the proposition that FIFA would be a better organisation 
if there were more women in it. And I was, I count myself just very, very lucky to have been there at the time when that proposition could be best appreciated. As in, you know, just after a bunch of arrests, just after the law enforcement authorities had arrived at our hotel and uh, moved along a number of my colleagues. It's interesting that you, that the mindset of lucky, some would be going, holy moly, how does she think she's lucky because of that? That's, that's kind of amazing. But a couple of points there, that movable middle. Uh, yeah, just a, just a tad, just a tad. Um, that, that movable middle is such an important part of, of the work that, that all of us do um, and understanding your stakeholders. So, you know, the movable middle, as we talk about, we've got the progressives, the conservatives or the, you know, the, the evangelists in one corner, the dinosaurs in the other. Dinosaurs never going to move, right? Um, but then we've got the movable middle, which contains a lot of folks with a lot of different views. And what you've said so beautifully there is understand that group because they're the ones who can if we're going to look at it as a binary argument support or not support they can either they're going to go one way or the other and they and being strategic about your evolution means understanding that audience lobbying as as you talked about and i think the i think one of the most underrated skills um, is curiosity or a couple of skills, curiosity uh, and empathy and vulnerability because I think when you're curious, when you have empathy and when you are vulnerable, you can do lobbying with very diverse stakeholder groups extremely well, particularly when you're wanting to get something over the line because you've, you've literally got to walk a mile in these other people's shoes to understand what's going to motivate them or demotivate them. So I think it's a really, really good call to action straight up for administrators making change. Now, whether it's around gender, uh, whatever the change is, I mean, because this is the hardest, for me, I think this is one of the hardest changes of all. Women belong in all places where decisions are made. They shouldn't be the exception, Ruth Bader Ginsburg but they still are. So how do we how do we help those people who are in those positions, those decision-making positions, allow more women in? We've got to lobby them, but we've got to understand what their motivation is. So I think it's a good call to action. Get strategic about that lobbying. Perhaps, you know, if I was to give this talk to my younger self, she, she might have been more um, successful because she might not have gone in like a battering ram to say this is the right thing to do. Um bang the table and we should get on board. Perhaps I would have learned earlier, as I hope our listeners are, that that lobbying, that strategic lobbying is so absolutely important. Um, what, what are you proud of, though? What are the outcomes that, uh, you know, if you reflect on that lobbying, that work that you've done around the movable middle, the significant advocacy work that you and others have done, what are you most proud of? In terms of a an outcome, you know, what's a, a what's a score on the board that you think? Yep, I did that, and I'm really pleased about it. Oh, there were a few things that I was very glad that I could contribute to. Uh, getting the hijab rule changed in FIFA was one of the earlier wins um, that I was involved in. I mean, it was it was very much a team effort with. Prince Ali of Jordan, uh, Hester in Royce, the former Matildas coach, was very involved in that. Uh, she had coached Jordan. She was the coach of Jordan at the time when they uh, had a match called off with Iran because there were players wearing the hijab. Um, and many, many other Muslim sportswomen around the world who just collaborated so beautifully to to do two things. One was to put pressure on decision makers and the other was to help people understand, including those decision makers, help them understand why it wasn't a threat and why it was a positive thing for the game. So for me, that was an early lesson in being able to make change from the inside and having to essentially address people's fears and and, and concerns in order to make that happen. Um, I'm, I was really pleased to work with the women in Iran who are still battling to get into football stadiums. Um, we have made some progress over the years, um, but even now, you know, we're seeing women getting pepper sprayed at the gates. Um, and it's just, it's just heartbreaking because it's so 
importantly symbolic to women's ability to participate in society. You know, this is the most popular thing happening, the the ability to go watch Tim Melly play. And men can and women can't, you know. It's it's um so so that's there's been a huge amount of work done. I mean I've made some lifelong friends in that process and I appreciate the lifelong almost struggle because this has been there for 40 years now so it's been a lifelong struggle for these women just to attain something that is we completely take for granted in in most countries of the world um but i think the statutory reforms in fifa are, are maybe the most lasting effort um i mean they were nothing like the complete package that we asked for which included hard quotas on representation and a Title IX-style approach to allocation of resources. But we made considerable progress towards those things and they're embedded in the FIFA statutes. And I've seen a few countries around the world who've picked that up and with you know local activism have made it really count in their country and and have seen things improve. I mean, Australia is one example, funnily enough. You know, these things kind of washed ashore in Australia after they were voted on in Zurich. And uh, the Board of Football Australia now has more than 50% women at this point in time, which is extraordinary. I mean, I was the only woman on that board for a long time. And here we are um, where we've got 50% Ish, actually, sometimes a bit under, but sometimes a bit over. But there, there's a 40 40 20 rule on that board now. So there should never be less than 40% women at the table. Um, human rights were part of that reform. Uh, disability discrimination was outlawed in the statutes as part of that reform. And, and all of those things, I think, provide great footholds for others to come along and do their work. Uh, as they as they do, and as they as they will continue to do, to make the biggest sport in the world more open and accessible and fair to uh, all of those who want to participate. That's a great expression, the footholds, because the work isn't done, um, and and you know, arguably that the work <clears throat> the work around equity and inclusion will never be done as we evolve as a human race uh, arguably some faster than others but um uh, as as we evolve you know we we become more and more aware of of a whole bunch of stuff and i, I really appreciate footholds because it gives gives, uh, it gives me a very visual sense of well okay as i pass the baton and you know i use sporting terminology for pretty much everything as i pass the baton or as you pass the baton you've given not only the baton but you've given the you know this is where to go and this is you know you're already you're already in the race because of these footholds that i've created for you it's a lovely expression um and that's that that gives gives me a great sense of um, what this call to action is for for administrators, and there's this terrific saying that for many of us, we're planting seeds to to for trees to grow that we will never sit under the shade of. You know, well, so there's some stuff that you've done. Um, there's stuff that I do, and other people do that. We're planting these seeds, and we may never sit under the shade of that tree that grows, but someone will. Those women in the future, those women and girls in the future, will. And that's a, it's a terrific thing. So I think that's a great lesson for administrators. Start. Now, start now, and even if you've got a hand off and hand off and hand off to, to the next and the next, that we've got to start. But as someone who says, you know, right, I've just listened to to Moya talking to Michelle, I'm motivated to start right now. What is, what is someone, and and let's kind of bring it into, you know, let's face it, elite sport is, yeah. Let, argue less than five percent of people in Australia. I don't know what the worldwide statistics are, but for those of us involved in sport at a community level, grassroots level, more broadly, what's what's a way to start your journey as an advocate for women and girls in sport, Moya? Uh, well, on on matters of on the substantive question of what needs, you know, what what should I work on? Uh, I think 
I, I always look at gender issues in sport through two questions. One is, what does the representation look like? Who's making the decisions? And around that table, do you see a group that reflects the broader constituency and the stakeholders? Do you see diversity? Uh, And do you see people being perhaps not equally empowered around that table, but at least there isn't too much difference in power? So everyone can speak up and everyone can have their point of view considered. So I would look first at the representation and say, how's that looking? And then I would look at the resourcing and say, let's see your budget. How is that split between the different teams at your club? Um, And let's look at maybe the non-budget resources, the ones that don't appear in the annual accounts, like uh, how many hours, um, uh, how how much space, if you look per square metre of grass uh, by the hour, where does that go? Um, because it all just kind of disappears into overheads in the fees you pay council. But let's have a look at how it's actually spent. And I think government should do this, by the way. I think council should be saying, we've got all these wonderful public resources. Who's getting to use them? And is that in any way what it should be, what we think is fair? I I couldn't agree more. And, you know, there is a bucket load of data out there, and I'm a great believer in facts and data. Um, And you know, you've just made me think of a couple of things, you know, <laughs> who gets the good oval versus the not so good oval to train on? Um, who gets who access gets to the, the lights? The lights, <laughs> yes, we're on the same. <laughs> yeah, who gets to train with car lights shone onto the field versus oh, the big done lights? That. Done that. Yeah, exactly. So great points. Okay. Um, and, and from that, you know, I take inspiration from Title IX in the US, which I think is having its – about, just had its 50th birthday, um, or it was about to have its 50th birthday. And that's a long time. Uh, but the, the core principle is that, or the, what, what Title IX says, is that if you're, if you're an education institution and you take even $1 of federal government funding, then you have an obligation to ensure that you don't discriminate on the basis of sex uh, between how that how the, in the way that that is used. So what that meant was that in the 70s, all the colleges and universities and schools in the US who took federal government funding, which is an awful lot of them, they had to look at how they spent their resources. And if they had, you know, 90% of their sports funding going to men's sport and 10% to women's sport, they had to drastically rebalance what they were doing. It wasn't just aimed at sport, by the way. This was a general equality measure, and it was designed to address the big imbalances in graduates, in the professions, and all sorts of things. And it did do that, but its most famous impact is that was actually on sport. And so, so now, if you have a college or university with approximately equal male-female gender ratio, within its student population group, then you should be seeing approximately equal resource allocation between uh, male and female sport. And if you don't, then they have to kind of come up with a bunch of excuses and they don't last forever because each year you've got to show progress towards a goal. Now, you know, of course, there are still some critics who say who say it hasn't been implemented properly and I, I wouldn't disagree with with any of that because there are people on the ground measuring things and saying the job's not done yet after 50 years. But nonetheless, I think it remains as probably the most successful regulatory intervention ever that has promoted the position of women in sport. It transformed football. It's what has made the US women's national team what it is today, made it the you know, serial winners of gold medals in uh, in in Olympic women's football made it the um, the the team that's won more World Cups than all of Europe put together. What has made that difference? A simple rule that says you must allocate resources equally. Yep, and you could argue also that the WNBA is is um, a, a that product is a recipient of of the benefits of that rule. Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. 
So that's structural. Yeah, that is structural reform. And you're right. I just quickly looked it up. It is, it is 50 this year. So there you go. Um, so in our lifetime, that has happened. And as you said, the work's not yet done. Why hasn't it been adopted more broadly? A Title IX style. Like I've seen in my, in my state here in Victoria and Australia, the Office of Women's Sport and Recreation created um, a, a link to of, uh, funding versus gender equity in a, as a result of an inquiry into women in sport. So for any state sporting or any sporting association to tap into funds from the government must have a gender balance board. And it was, it was a hard quota. So in, by July 2019, if your board wasn't 40, 40, 20, you could not, unless there were extenuating circumstances, you could not, would not be considered for government funding. And what's been interesting was that at the time when that mandate was handed down, I think it was around 44% of, of organisations were compliant. Just two years later, it was in the 90th, 90th percentile of compliance and remains so. So, you know, this is this is the structural stuff that can make a difference. Um, and no, it's not the only, it's not the only instrument because there's all the other micro, you know, pieces that come out of it. But why haven't, you know, in our country of Australia, and of course I have a global focus, but in our country of Australia, why hasn't it been adopted? See, what you've just described is is a good example of how they have used the levers at their disposal to transform representation, right? I'm saying let's not stop at representation. Let's take a good close look at resourcing and use the levers at your disposal there. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of statements of – there are a lot of grand statements in sporting bodies governing documents. Um, There are statements of non-discrimination. There are – uh, statements about, you know, gender, sexual orientation, religion, like nearly all entities will have some kind of grand statements about discrimination. But the challenge is in enforcing those and getting a remedy that will be enforced within the sporting system. Um, that remains a work in process. The, the whole sport and human rights movement is prioritising that. Because uh, it's obviously crucial to the protection of human rights that there be remedies. There are no rights without remedies, as they say. Um, but governments, and I would say sponsors, can play a huge role in this in Australia by simply making their grants conditional upon actual compliance with what sporting bodies say they will do. I think there's a there's another piece as well. So couldn't couldn't agree more. I don't know if there's enough, uh, broadly speaking, enough courage in in leadership in government to to do that at a federal level. Let's hope that that comes to to, to pass. We've certainly seen, as I said in in my own state, that's been a, a literally a game changer. Um, uh, but at an individual level, and particularly for those of our, those of you listening who are in organizations that sponsor sport, you know, this is where we can flex some muscles. So I absolutely agree, sponsors. And increasingly, I'm talking to business leaders who are saying, you know, Michelle, I'd, I'd actually rather be the number one banner on a women's jersey than number 17 logo down the back of the men's, you know, because I want I want our organisation to have profile. And it was interesting, I was reading. So there's a bit of, I think there's, there's a bit of woke washing that we've got to be careful about uh, and do some very thoughtful partnerships, commercial partnerships. But I think... Um, you know, I, I just read an article this morning about how Amazon tried to br- buy the Seattle Pride um, Festival, and Seattle Pride said, "Yeah, no, thank you very much." So I think there's there's got to be there's got to be nous on both sides around this. But I agree with that completely. I mean, I, I think don't buy what you don't understand. If you're going to put money down, make sure you understand what it is and can meaningfully support it. You know, I think people. I, I'm not. There's a saying that people don't buy products anymore, they buy a purpose. And women's sport is is almost synonymous 
at least in my sport, it's almost synonymous with that purpose because the biggest players on the world stage have stood up for not only gender equality principles but other socially progressive and important um, topics as well. Uh, Megan Rapinoe, I think, was the first um, first high-profile, certainly the first white athlete to take a knee after Colin Kaepernick had, had led the way. Um, you know, and those things they matter. Look at look at the basketball team in Georgia that uh, had such an influence on the U.S. Senate election, and you know, I think I think Joe Biden owes his Senate majority to that team. To women's basketball, it's owed to women's sport. They had a huge impact on on the outcome of that election. So they've they've been very much on the front edge, particularly in the US. We've seen it very much on the front edge of social change. I think in Australia, we've got many high profile women athletes who are speaking up about not only gender equality issues and, and equal pay, but also things like climate change, which are major issues for everyone and also for sport. Uh, so you know, if if you're a sponsor, a hundred percent, you know, you you would know if you're a listed public company, you would know you have shareholder activists who are probably going to stand up at your next AGM and ask you some tricky questions. And one of those questions might be, why is your sporting sponsorship dollar so skewed towards male sports? And does that align with the brand values you tell us that you stand for? Like that's a question you should be prepared to answer if you're a sponsor. I couldn't agree more. And as someone who does make a habit of going to AGMs and listening to Do questions, you? I'm very it. nerdy. I am, aren't I? Yeah, my. Um, well, you just have a massive portfolio of shares, Michelle. No, no, I'd love to say that I do, but you know, my my darling wife runs out. We have our own superannuation fund, and, and it's got some shares in it. So she sends me to the AGMs, which I love going to. Um, but well, I there love you go. going You've to. You've got them. some questions to ask, there, haven't you? I do. I do. You've just given me another couple of tools sure in my toolbox. <laughs> but it is it is fascinating. You're right. That shareholder activism, um, and I think there's another. Another piece which I've talked about a lot with people, and I and I use my two children, my adult children, thirty two and twenty eight. They are not interested in listening to politicians. They 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 do not buy into the political system, and they have great distrust and not and probably zero respect. But when an athlete or a, a body of athletes stands up for something, they take notice. And it was interesting, as you know, with with them having. Two mums, two gay mums, uh, during the marriage uh, equality uh, debacle here in Australia. Uh, my son had a conversation with me about. He said, "I I didn't kind of get it because that's just been our life forever." But he goes, "I didn't kind of get it until the AFL made a stand. The AFL came out and said, "We, you know, we support same sex marriage, etc." He said, "Mum, that was a really big deal because then I could talk to some of my mates about it." And and so I think that there's great power. There's a, there's a lot of power in sport, but also I think you know those sponsors, those people who are going to put money into sport. Yeah, do do look at it. Just like government should be. Is there a Title Nine? They think so. Think about Title Nine every time you invest. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess the you know when when it comes to getting stuff done, getting shit done, as I say. Um, I want to focus now on two things. One, there are a lot of women who want to do what you do and who want to create those footholds for the ones that come after and create that glassy, smooth path for the women that come after them. What's your advice for them to keep showing up, not just turning up, but keep showing up and creating those footholds? Um, and, and the context for that, Moyer, is, you know, this is can be exhausting work. And to be, uh, you know, the only woman or one of a few in a in an environment where you are othered all of the time and doing a whole lot of advocacy work can be tiring. What's your advice to that woman who might be listening right now? Uh, I think the support and and the uplifting of other women is it has been incredibly important to me. And I would say find that tribe because uh, they will 
walk alongside you. They will walk behind you. They will walk ahead of you. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's a team sport. <laughs> Equality is a team sport, as Athlete Ally likes to say. And I think there you sometimes hear that, you know, women will put other women down or, or you know, and of course not every woman is going to be of like mind, but I have found overwhelmingly that the women I have met in football have been, uh, they've been the tribe that's had my back. They've, they put all hands to the pump when opportunities arose, like the chance to reform the FIFA statutes. I can't tell you how many <laughs> I was on the phone to, you know, on, on, on calls almost every day for months to, 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 women who were enormously supportive um, and hilarious, I might add, and incredibly networked and and effective in what they were able to make happen. Um, so, you know, I, I think, and I think learning from each other, I, I mean, one of the challenges we had in the reform process was, well, what do we ask for? Well, we kind of knew what to ask for because we'd been talking about it for years. Uh you know, they say that in, in crises, the, the ideas that get picked up are, are from the pool of good ideas that are lying around. Well, we had plenty of good ideas that were lying around. So, you know, you, you kind of need to explore your purpose, know your purpose, so that you know what to fight for when that door opens because um, timing is everything in sport. It's everything on the field and it's awfully important off the field. You could go in, as I did, I went into FIFA with a shopping list of things I wanted to achieve. Uh, I could have spent all my energy trying to uh, do something that was just not doable at that time. But when it becomes doable, because another issue arises or for some reason the lid comes off uh, uh, some, some issue, then you need to be there and ready to make it happen because, you know, those opportunities don't come around that often. So out of the kind of portfolio of uh, principled ideas that, that you have for change, you'll need to pluck one out that is right for that moment. Um, how will you know that? Well, you'll know that because the community knows it. So connect with that community. And to the, to the, the power brokers, to those who currently hold power, I would say find the women who are of and from the game who will know that they will bring that if if you if you have a, a quota position whether it's a, a, a soft quota or a hard quota that you're trying to fill um you need to look beyond the pool of women that you know or are related to and you need to go to those who are the heart and soul of the women's game in in your sport because they will probably have been overlooked for most of their lives. They'll be bursting with good ideas and wisdom and learning, things that have been – they'll know what's been tried before. They'll know what's worked and why. They'll know what didn't work and why. And there is a store of experience there that needs to be tapped into. Um, I mean, we talk a lot about getting women to the table when we talk about representation in decision making, but I think you you can't just kind of grab the nearest woman and stick her on a board and expect that that's the answer. Um, you need to look towards the constituency that's underrepresented and find someone who will represent that constituency. That's what a quota's job is. It's saying there's an underrepresented group. And we're going to correct that by finding someone from that group and putting them on the board. And I think just saying, you know, women who are actually more than half the population, we just need to find a woman and stick her on there. No, 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 no. <laughs> what you need to do is find the constituency that is supposed to be represented. Is it women football players? Is it the, the teams and the competitions who you need to get that knowledge to the table? So find those women. They're absolutely out there. You won't have to look far. Everybody knows who's everybody within women's sport. You know, we're, we have networks. Um, overwhelmingly, they are supportive and generous and knowledgeable. 
there's a lot of intergenerational wisdom too that, you know, and, and I think there should be more intergenerational conversations as well. Like we probably need to work harder on that, but making sure that the wisdom of what's gone can combine with the platforms and the, you know, the activism platforms that current players have and profiles that they have uh, will be incredibly effective. Um, not only in the decision making room, but also much more broadly in the way that the public, the fans, the sponsors and governments and decision makers see women's sport. Beautiful. Thank you. So we've heard you. No, no, that's all good. I'm, I'm very, very happy with a rant, uh, as you well know, uh, given that we're Twitter buddies. But um <laughs> so we've heard about your journey uh, and your advice. So from women working hard on the field to create a product that can't be ignored. We've heard about evolution versus revolution and being able to be very conscious of the movable middle and fight and lobbying strategically uh, with that movable middle who hold power uh, to, to advance women in sport. We've heard from you about creating footholds and those terrific footholds that you and others have created in football um, around the world. Um, absolutely. The, the women that have gone before you, that's right. Um, I, I've, I've really I, I've enjoyed our conversation about resourcing in particular and Title IX. I think it's a really important call out from this discussion the principles of Title IX, use that to guide your approach to women in, and girls in sport. You've quite rightly said that equality is a team sport, and I know that's, that's another person's quote, but equality is a team sport, and we are, we can all do this together, stronger together. Um, and for the women listening, yeah, do find your your tribe, do find, we're there. Um, and and I, I agree with you, Moya. You're a great demonstration of the of the generosity uh, and the collaborative nature of women in sport. Um, I myself have been a benefit um, of that. In fact, I'm a beneficiary today because you've been so generous with your time with me. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to claim. I'm, I'm happy to claim that perpetrator. Yeah, that perpetrator title. <laughs> um, and and for the the administrators listening, find the constitu- the constituency, find those women, and and they are not hard to find. But go beyond your own circle and start to listen to the lived experience of women, but bring them to the table because these women must be at the decision making table to help sport flourish and sustain. Moya, that's been a great conversation, but you're not off the hook yet because what are you hopeful for? What are you what are you hopeful for in the next well let's I won't even say the next twelve months because I think time's pretty elastic at the moment and it's pretty pretty gnarly out there, but what's what are you optimistic about when it comes to women in sport? I think we have so much to look forward to in the next few years. Uh I, I mean I, I see incredible examples overseas of the growth in in football particularly 91,000 people showing up to Barcelona Real Madrid uh, in Spain um i mean these are these are groundbreaking uh developments globally and they will help a lot all over the world because people will look at it and go yeah well that's what it looks like to have a stadium full of people watching women's football and it begins. It makes people imagine what's possible. Yeah. Uh, everywhere uh, in Australia, we have a lot of hosting of global events coming up. Um, I don't think the Australian Rules World Cup is quite there yet, but we do have a football <laughs> World Cup coming. <laughs> Uh, we've had cricket, we've got basketball, we've got the Olympics coming. I mean, these are going to be phenomenal events and they are an opportunity to redefine sport, redefine what elite sport looks like for um, all of Australians to see, particularly younger Australians who don't have the 
decades of imbalance that we've all had to live through. Um, and that's hugely exciting. I mean, you know, my son's got a bunch of teenage male friends who are just they're incredibly excited about the Women's World Cup coming here yep. next year. They're excited to see the games. They follow the teams. They, they sort of track who's doing well and who's not. They know some of the players. They're looking forward to the fans coming here from all over the world and creating a wonderful party atmosphere. And that's going to be redefining in, yeah. in how people think about sport. I mean, the I've got to say the fan culture in women's sport is – just something, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it sure I, is. You know, we saw Melbourne victory, the victory Vikings, um, winning winning the dub. I mean, that that was that their their culture is just beautiful to see. Mm. There's something for men's professional sport to to observe, to bottle, to learn mm-hmm. from when they look at how women's sport is loved by fans of all genders. Uh, in our games. And, you know, that is something to be hopeful about. You, know, you think of all mm-hmm. the things that kind of go wrong in the world of fandom in, in men's professional sport, and it gets pretty ugly at times, right? Yeah, it um, does. You don't see that in women's sport. And may no, that long yeah. be the case, and may it spread um, that kind of those good vibes throughout sport. So, you know, I think it's a chance to re, not just vi- revisit gender inclusion in sport in in the way that we all think about it in the the water that we swim in but it's also a chance to embrace inclusive sport more broadly um i think there's a natural tendency for people who are good at sport to be drawn into it and to stay in it and be rewarded for that uh, to always be selected you know we want you because you're good and you'll help our team win right that's that's what happens um Normally, I think well, what's what happens now. I think there's an opportunity to tip that on its head almost. And instead of saying, you know, do I want you? Are you good to for my team to help me win? I think we should be asking the question the other way around. Um, do, do I do I want you to play in this game? Well, how good would it be for you to mm. play in this game? Not how good mm. would it be for me as a team manager to have you in terms of winning or losing, but but what is the benefit to you? And if we started allocating sporting opportunities according to the benefits that it will bring to the participant instead of the benefits, instead of just the benefits that it will bring to the team result, then we would see a very different allocation, I think. I mean, imagine picking two teams at recess time at school and, you know, the kids who are best at the sport, I'll put that in quotes, best at the sport, get picked first. We've all been in those yep. environments. We've seen that happen. We understand it. Well, imagine if you said we're going to pick two teams, the kids who get picked first are those who will benefit the most from playing in this match. And it, you might get very different kids uh, getting that opportunity. It might be the kids who've never played before, the kids who've been told they're no good at it, the kids who are having a terrible time at home or, you know, dealing with some major drama in their life, um, the, 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 the girls who've simply mm. never stepped forward or pushed themselves forward but given the opportunity would really enjoy it and it would open up a different world to them. And you wonder what sport would look like if we were to allocate participation opportunities proactively on that basis. I mean, wouldn't that be something if we could well, reimagine I, I, sport that way? Maybe that's a Title Ten, you know, inclusion. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the, the there's a whole bunch of you know, innovation's not just the next Apple iPhone, as I often say. Innovation is is actually thinking more broadly and more deeply about um, different stuff and different ways to do stuff. And I think that's a that's a great a great way to think about how might people benefit from sport more people benefit from more sport. Well, um, and for you and I in our demographic, Michelle, I think um, what we politely call overage sport uh, is is a big player here. I mean, I've I've just uh, registered, I think it's my 43rd year uh, of playing football. I tried to count them up, uh, but I'm, in, I'm playing in the over 40s now, so that's going to be a lot of fun. 
no one should watch it, but we're going to enjoy it a lot. <laughs> Good on you. Good on you. Well, Moya Dodd, thank you very much. That's a lot. There's a lot of wisdom there. And for our listeners, be sure to read the companion article to get a uh, the very, very clear call to actions, uh, calls to action, I should say. And uh, and please do follow Moya and and her exploits because they it is good stuff. Thanks, folks. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that you can gain a lot of insights and importantly, take action wherever you may work in sport. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating. It really helps to spread the word. And of course, please do share this episode with your friends, with your colleagues and with your network of people in sport, because together we can close the leadership gender gap.